Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is TTS Thursday number 16. And today we'll talk about the top five tips for advanced athletes to get faster. But before that, a big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Zenate that you can find on zenatesimtrainer.com. The Zenate Swim Trainer is an inflatable swim bench that helps you work on your swim technique, power, and stamina in a very time-efficient manner because you can do it from the comfort of your own home and you can do it using all of the design features of the Zenate Swim Trainers to help you work on things like a high elbow catch and core activation due to the built-in instability element of the swim bench. With using the swim bench, when you combine that with normal swimming in the pool or open water, it allows you to get a higher frequency of training stimulus in. Uh, if you are limited in the number of times you can get to the pool each week, which most of us are because it is quite time consuming. And uh, that is where the Senate Swim Trainer comes in and can help you. You can get 20% off your order of the Senate Swim Trainer with a promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. Roka has multiple international and US patents and top-of-the-line technology and innovations in all of their product ranges. Some examples showing just how innovative this company is includes their arms up technology that you have in all of their wetsuits from the entry level and up, also in all of their trisuits. And of course, in their swim skins. Their sunglasses and prescription glasses all have a Geeko anti slip technology so that you cannot have your glasses fall off your face no matter how hard you try. Their R1 goggles that uh, are used in swimming have rapid sight angled lenses so that you can lift your head less and therefore lose less speed due to decreased momentum when you're siding in the open water. And uh, the final example, just to finish off a list of a few, is the core exoskeleton in the Maverick X2 wetsuit that allows a better connectivity and transmission of power between the upper and the lower body for a more powerful stroke and better efficiency in the water. You can get 20% off your entire Roka order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. And just quickly before we get into the main part of today's episode, I want to thank everybody that has been rating and reviewing the podcast recently. I've been asking actively for ratings and reviews and you have clearly been been answering. So thank you so much for that. It really means a lot, both personally for me, putting all this time into the podcast, but also just for long-term sustainability of keeping the podcast going, considering that it does take a lot of time to create. So so it's we need to need to keep the listeners coming in to to keep that happening so a massive thank you to all of you who rated and reviewed the podcast and uh, again if you are somebody that hasn't done so yet but you are enjoying the podcast uh, and you think you get a lot of value from it then a five-star rating and a review on apple podcasts or itunes which you can download on a pc you don't have to have an apple computer wherever you can rate and review the podcast that means means a lot so if you can do that please do so now let's get on right to the list of the top five things for advanced athletes to get faster and where as usual i remember we had beginners two weeks ago and intermediate athletes one week ago and uh, we're going to count down from number five and number five on this list is to learn how to race rather than just executing a race plan this uh, item 
I would say, applies for a segment of athletes, and that is those fighting for overall positions, like fighting for an overall podium, an overall top five or top ten. It's not for everybody, even though you might be an advanced advanced level athlete. But if you are an advanced level athlete, but not necessarily being in that very top of the top in the races, then it might still be the best thing to do to just follow your own strategy. So so this one is the one item on this list that doesn't apply to, to everybody within the advanced athlete segment. But for those for whom this apply, uh, learning how to race means learning how to understand yourself and your body and what you can and cannot do in the dynamic environment of a rain of a race where you have not just uh, the course and the weather conditions and so on to uh, to take into account but also what the other people around you are doing so one way to describe this which david tilbury davis who is my coach has uh, talked about before on this podcast is to uh, consider it the race like a game of poker and how important it is to know and understand your hand and the hands of others as much as you can know that of course and when you know your hand and you know the hands of others then you have the best possible chance of knowing what affordances you can make in the race what when to go when not to go when to when to attack when not to attack and so on so just as an example on a hilly bike course or run course for that matter how much you can temporarily push hard when going uphill potentially going above threshold depending of course on the race and the context to optimize your speed around the course but still making sure that you don't blow up that is something that you really need to understand yourself and your body to to learn how to do optimally and and it takes time learning how hard you can afford to go for the first 15 or 30 minutes of the bike leg if you are relatively speaking a slower swimmer and want to catch up to the group of fast swimmers ahead of you on the bike that is another example or just how hard can you go in the swim start in the first two to four hundred meters to get in as good a position as possible to hang on to a pack of of much faster swimmers and then get into a better position uh, into t1 those are all examples of learning how to understand yourself and your body or your poker hand if you will and the poker hand of others and using that in races and this will depend on which race it is and how the race dynamics play out so that's why you cannot necessarily have a preset strategy because you will always have to make decisions on the fly once you're racing for positions now how do you develop this skill to race First of all, you just need to put yourself on the start line of races. Uh, if you race just once or twice per year, that's probably not enough to really develop that racing intuition. Uh, it can be a good thing to race non-triathlon races like running and cycling races uh, because just to add more racing experiment experience to your resume and uh, duathlon and aquathlon as other multi-sport events would be even better but of course the most specific and important development that you can do comes from racing other triathlon races whatever distances they are doesn't matter as much of course if you have one particular focus distance then racing that distance gives you the most amount of knowledge and the most amount of experience so so that is a consideration but you will get knowledge you will learn how to develop that racing intuition knowing how to understand yourself from any distance races the second thing that you should do to develop this skill is to review and analyze your races after the fact and then use that to inform your strategy for upcoming races knowing fully well that again race dynamics will play out so you 
won't necessarily follow a st strict strategy per se, but uh, you will basically know better what you can and cannot do and put some guardrails perhaps around what you definitely cannot do and what you might be able to do on a good day and so on. So really putting it, paying attention into the review and an analysis process of your races, that is a really important part of developing the skill of racing once you are at that level. But again, just to make that abundantly clear, even if you're an advanced athlete, you might be podiuming in your age group. Uh, when in typical let's say Ironman and challenge races when you have a lot of people out there you don't necessarily know where the other people in your age group are and and if you are let's say in the 50 to 55 age group you're generally not going to be the absolute fastest uh, people and the absolute fastest age group on the race course so so it's difficult to know where the other people are or if not impossible so your best chance then is really to almost treat it as a time trial and do your best race strategy so this learning how to race doesn't come into play as much but if you are in one of the fastest age groups or if you are a pro of course then learning how to race is a super important skill and uh, that's then it could potentially go way higher up this list than than number five but uh, here it is it is on the list learning how to race is my number five number four on the list is to optimize your gear uh, including your bike swim and run equipment as well as your bike fit there's no getting away from the fact that to a certain degree you can buy speed in triathlon it is still of course the athlete that swims and bikes and runs it's not the wetsuit it's not the bike or the wheels it's not the carbon plated shoes they won't do anything without an athlete and a, a good engine in the athlete and so when you still have plenty of room for improvement uh, at a fitness level then it makes more sense in my opinion to allocate your energy and resources towards improving your own fitness your own performance level because there's more potential for improvement there than there is with equipment but when you get to that advanced level and you start getting closer to your potential if you really want to maximize performance then you should care deeply about equipment because it can make a very significant difference at that level where every second counts so we're not going to go and do a deep dive about equipment but some high level items where there is potentially a relatively large amount of time gains to be had if you get the right piece of equipment versus the wrong piece of equipment would include your wetsuit or your swim skin your tri suit your helmet your wheels your tires your running shoes and probably the most important of all items uh, i would say is to get the right bike fit because that helps you get the most out of your bike which is your biggest and most expensive piece of equipment in all likelihood the difference between a great and a bad bike fit is massive in terms of performance and time gains so definitely something you should do if you haven't done a bike fit and consider updating it every once in a while even if you had done one have done one uh, because there may still be room for improvement there even if it's pretty if your bike fit is pretty good generally and works well for you perhaps you've had changes in strength or muscular endurance or uh, flexibility that allow you to take a new position that might be even better for you so yeah getting an update every once in a while is uh, definitely recommended 
On both the equipment and the bike fitting side, I have done lots of interviews previously on the podcast that you might find interesting. A link to all of them in the show notes. Uh, I have probably seven episodes that I have as listed here. Some of my favorites include included the ones with uh, with Phil Burt. Recently, we had David Bowden. Uh, we've had Josh Portner and uh, Dan Bigham to name just a few. And I'll have many, many links in the episode description. So check them out. They're all worth listening to. So that was number four, optimize your gear and equipment. Number three, explore psychological aspects to performance. This one has uh, some overlap with uh, number five, learn how to race, uh, because as you are working on psychological aspects of performance, uh, then you're also going to be improving aspects of learning how to race, like perhaps learning how to go really deep when somebody attacks uh, or when you attack for that matter. Uh, that's just one one example, maybe not the best example, but but I think you get what I'm saying. There is a slight overlap there, but exploring psychological aspects of performance applies even if you're not racing head-to-head, uh, even if you are more so executing the race as a as an individual time trial because the difference between having a great psychological toolbox and strategies that you can use uh, in an individual time trial versus not having a toolbox at all can be a massive uh, difference in terms of time and performance and psychological aspects of performance even apply to training once you expand that toolbox of psychological and mental tactics and strategies you can start to apply them in any given workout and if that helps you perform even a few percent better in some of your key workouts then over time that can translate into improved performance i find that to some extent you do unconsciously develop a greater set of mental skills and tools year by year as you get more experienced in endurance sports so even without any conscious effort you are likely to have a better toolbox once you're five years into the sport compared to one year into the sport but for advanced athletes deliberately working on mental skills and psychological skills can have a huge upside because it is something that makes such a big difference there are countless stories of elite athletes who have gone from also rands or nobodies to contenders and winners of the biggest races on the biggest stages in the world where at least their subjective explanation for why what was the reason for their improvement can be attributed to uh, an elevated aspect of performance on the psychological side of performance so in addition to that huge upside another advantage of focusing on this is that not many other people are taking great advantage of deliberately working on psychological aspects of performance and definitely i'll be the first to say that i'm quite guilty of this myself and uh, planning this episode actually made me want to do something about it but uh, the point is that since most people are not taking advantage of deliberate uh, deliberate focus on psychology this is a very different advantage than the equipment one for example because if you go and race kona then a lot of the athletes around you that you're competing against will have a really good handle on their equipment and uh, basically you having a good handle on your equipment just makes sure that you're not at a disadvantage it doesn't give you an advantage because there are so many others around you that also have kind of the best equipment or are optimized in that way but if you are working on psychology most of the other athletes around you are probably just scratching the surface of that and uh, if you are deliberately working on it you can have a big advantage on most of the rest of the field so how can you explore the psychological aspects of performance and develop mental skills by far the best way is to work with a psychologist 
a sports psychologist, I should say. Uh, obviously, the fastest and biggest improvements in anything you want to learn, develop, uh, you will gain that from working with somebody who is an expert at that subject matter, but also at teaching it and helping others develop it. Those kinds of experts have the knowledge and experience to quickly assess what strategies might be best suited for you as an individual and what your main obstacles might be in your own psychology and how to tackle them. And also to teach you how to effectively learn, internalize and apply those tactics and strategies. So of course you can read, you can listen to podcasts, you can watch YouTube videos, and all of that is great, but it doesn't really compare to working with an actual expert one-on-one. -on -one. The good thing is that, because this is of course an investment, but you can get a lot out of just a few sessions, at least to start out. It's not something you have to commit to doing for the rest of your career every single month or week. You can do a few sessions so you get a proper assessment of your context, get a few strategies uh, going and get some initial feedback on how you're doing. And that in itself will be hugely valuable because the things you learn in those first few sessions were most likely what the practitioner thought were the things you needed the most and had the most to gain from, the lowest hanging fruit, so to say. So so you can just you can get pretty far by just tackling those lo lowest hanging fruit and then potentially get back next season and and start work on some some other things and get a, a get an update on where you stand and so on. So so I would definitely recommend working with a sports psychologist at least for a few sessions and see where that can take you. The other thing you can do to explore the psychological aspects of performance would be to keep a psychology training and racing log. And what I mean by that is to write down what you do and how things go with regard to psychology in training and in racing. So try to analyze why you did what you did. For example, did you have a hypothesis that uh, using positive self-talk in this race was going to help you stay strong on the run until the end? And analyze why it worked the way it worked. And then over time, you will figure out things that work for you and things that don't work for you. As a personal example, I have found that I perform best in races when I'm really on the quite relaxed side beforehand and not at all on the amped up side. And this is something that is quite individual and uh, you need to find what works for you. But personally, that's what I found just through uh, writing down things and an analyzing things after races. And uh, I, I, this informed my approach in how I approach race morning and even the day before the race, what mindset I, I try to take and, and even how I go through race morning with in terms of, for example, music i used to listen to things like symphonic metal on race morning uh, just because that gets me quite amped up and i use that a lot actually in in hard workouts but then i figured out that that's not the state of mind that i perform the best in on race day when or that i want to be on the start line in so i started listening to more upbeat pop music and similar and that just seems to work much better for getting in the right mental state for me so the point here is that you should do this kind of analysis and reflection before and after races. So before races, thinking about what will you do from a psycho psychological perspective, and then after races, thinking about what did you do and how did it work. But you can also do it for training, and you probably should do it for training to really get the most out of this. So before training, in particular before key sessions, before your hard or long workouts, 
set an intention for what you want to achieve from a psychological and mental skills side and then after the session analyze how it went and whether it worked and log that in your psychology training log and uh, finally one thing that i want to highlight that there seemed to be a strong scientific consensus around that just works is positive self-talk it just seems to be very beneficial for endurance performance so Examples of positive self-talk can be something as simple as I'm feeling strong, I'm feeling in control and uh, use that in training and then use that in racing. It works. It's very simple, but it works. And of course, you can read up on it and Google it and you'll find many more examples and figure out what particular statements might be might seem the best to you to use, but but it just works. So, so start using that, but don't think that you can use it on race day for the first time and it will work you have to you have to train this you have to use it in training as well as in racing for it to work so i don't really have anything more to add on this one on the psychological aspects of performance i'll gladly admit that sports psychology is not an area that i'm super knowledgeable in so my main recommendation is just to find an expert on the topic and contact them Uh, there is as i said a huge potential advantage in this realm so better make the most of it i'll link in the episode description to a couple of episodes that i've done on sports psychology including a recent one which was episode 282 with simon marshall and leslie patterson so definitely uh, check those out all of the the episodes that i'll link to if you are interested in learning more about sports psychology so that's it for number three which was explore the psychological aspects of performance and let's now move on to number two which is increase your focus on and commitment to recovery so on average an advanced athlete is uh, typically going to be training more quite a bit more uh, sometimes than an intermediate or a beginner athlete and uh, there are of course some very advanced athletes that train with quite limited volume but the overall training load is still most likely higher than it would be for a slightly less advanced athlete training the same amount as this uh, time restricted athlete because an advanced athlete uh, is simply moving faster in the water and uh, when running and pushing more power when cycling so the energetic flux how much energy they expend when training and how much energy they need to consume to uh, to compensate for it but uh, the higher energy flux is also uh, i would say correlated with just a higher need for general recovery we're not just talking about food or uh, energy or calories uh, so so that's that's one aspect of why advanced athletes uh, need to increase their focus on on and commitment to recovery it's the higher energetic flux that comes from both volume and the absolute intensity we're not talking relative intensity but absolute intensity but uh, in addition to that advanced athletes also put a bigger load on their neuromuscular system due to again pushing higher powers moving at faster speeds in the water or when running so adequate recovery is critical to be able to simply repair the muscle damage caused by hard training sessions and when moving at fast speeds pushing high powers and uh, to restore the readiness of the nervous system as well to do its part in movement like neural drive and uh, the availability of, of neurotransmitters so 
in short, the faster and fitter you are and the bigger your training load in terms of volume and intensity, the more you need to make recovery a priority. Otherwise, you might gain some maladaptations rather than adaptations. So this does not mean that you need to go and spend hundreds or thousands on the latest gadgets or monitor, monitoring tools or the hottest supplements. 98% of optimal recovery comes down to two main factors that I'm sure is news to nobody and that's sleep and nutrition so first with regard to sleep i linked to two in-depth interviews i've done on the topic before that i highly recommend you check out they're episodes 216 and 52 with dr charles samuels and shauna halson respectively but just to summarize and i'm drawing here in particular from the more recent interview i did which was with dr charles samuels he says in response to the question of what good sleep looks like for endurance athletes that uh, it consists of an absolute minimum of seven hours per night but then there is individual variation so some will need more of an absolute minimum of eight on the individual basis or nine on on that individual basis so you need to work out what you need per night but uh, for nobody it's less than seven and then you just need to make sure that you get that uh, and even though there might be some nights when you fall a bit short what dr samuel says is that as long as you get it over the course of a weekly cycle uh, you're you're not doing bad so so you can kind of bank a little bit of sleep on on the weekend Uh, not not necessarily saying that you should use that too much of course and take it to the extreme but uh, but that's one thing from that interview with uh, charles samuels that stood out he also says that you can use napping to uh, make up for a little bit of sleep depth not a large sleep depth of course but uh, napping can be used strategically and then in terms of quality he says that if athletes go to bed fall asleep within 30 minutes they wake up once per night or not at all and when they are are awake they wake up for less than 15 minutes and then they wake up spontaneously in the morning feeling good then there's no sleep problem at all in terms of quality so that's some simple and uh, good good advice i think wearables and sleep monitors are quite popular these days and my opinion but also generally the opinion of the experts that i've talked to including the ones mentioned before that i've interviewed is that you don't need them uh, and in some situations they can be harmful because they cause stress uh, of, of you to kind of perform when you're sleeping so uh, so definitely not something that you need to uh, that you need to have or by any means at all and in fact it might be better not to have them good sleep hygiene is really important to commit to for anybody but here we're talking about advanced athletes in particular and this is important for you to be able to fall asleep and to sleep well as much as possible through the night uh, with minimal awakenings uh, but also for just the general sleep quality how deeply you sleep and, and going through all the sleep cycles none of these things are news but uh, just consider the impact on your sleep of things like caffeine your your caffeine habits screen time before bed uh, whether you're winded up versus winding down before bed so your evening routine if you want to call it that uh, bedroom temperature and uh, noise so this is not to go into details on sleep we have as i said the episode specifically for that but as an advanced athlete in particular i don't need to tell you how important sleep is you know that the thing is that uh, this is one of the things that you can commit to doing to give yourself a long enough window of opportunity to sleep to fulfill your sleep quality quantity requirements and have good basic sleep hygiene habits to get good enough quality as well
So that was part number one of committing and fo- to and focusing on recovery. Part number two is nutrition. And uh, nutrition can be split into in-workout and outside of workout, in-workout fueling and outside of workout nutrition. So uh, as I said, with advanced athletes, uh, they have a high energy flux. Firstly, because of the volume of training, which is typically higher, you might train twice a day on many days and your sessions might be longer but also you're producing more power on the bike that means you're requiring more energy to do that you're running hard running faster it might not feel fast but if you're jogging at four minute 30 pace and somebody else is jogging at six minute pace and it feels the same to them and you might have the same percent of max heart rate you're the one burning through a lot more energy than the athlete that is that is slower so so energy flux is a huge consideration for advanced athletes and uh, if we talk about in workout uh, nutrition first this is probably or fueling i should say this is one of the most difficult things to get right and uh, we see that a lot of athletes that do most things in their training and lifestyle really really well uh, still struggle and or just plain and simple screw in workout fueling up completely and uh, and it can be have really serious consequences as in not improving just for that very reason it's not to say that it's easy to get it right it definitely requires a lot of planning and a fair amount of basic knowledge uh, which hopefully uh, through this podcast you you have uh, you have that already and and it requires an approach of experimentation and iteration to find what really works for you one of the main things i think that leads to issues with in workout fueling is that the mindset is often uh, one of well, I can get through this workout just fine without eating anything or having anything. So, so I will just do that. But uh, that is approaching the 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 question or the the issue from the wrong direction, because you're not just fueling for the workout you're doing at the moment when you consume energy during workouts, but equally, if not more importantly, you are also fueling the upcoming workouts and making sure you don't deplete yourself and put yourself in a hole. Uh, so you're already recovering while you're training, if that makes sense when when you're fueling. So one main issue with not fueling work within workouts is that replenishing muscle glycogen stores when training under heavy load, it just takes a long time. And if you are somebody training at a pretty high volume and training twice a day for most days, for example, then if you deplete your muscle glycogen stores, you may not be able to replenish them until the next time you have 48 hours straight with very little training. For more information about muscle glycogen stores and replenishing them, uh, see the interview that I did with Bob Murray. I will link to that in the episode uh, description as well. A great episode that I recommend checking out. So what you do when you fuel within workouts, even if it's just a normal zone two endurance ride or a fairly steady or easy swim or run, what you're doing is that you give your body a chance to use those exogenous carbs as their carbohydrate source. And yes, you will be using carbohydrate even at endurance efforts. And no, don't worry, you will still be using plenty of fat for fuel and you will still be able to have a good fat oxidation rate even if you are fueling with carbohydrate. I hope we can uh, stop beating that dead horse at some point, but uh, I still get some questions around that, so we wanted to mention it. But uh, yeah, you're giving your body a chance to use exogenous carbs uh, as the carbohydrate source, and that saves them from using all of that muscle glycogen. You probably won't be fueling enough to completely uh, stop uh, your 
your muscle glycogen stores from becoming depleted but they will be less depleted so you will have a chance of uh, replenishing them in time for your next session Uh, simply put when you don't deplete them as much in the first place then you don't run into the issues that come from low muscle glycogen later on and, and you don't end up accumulating or going into a deeper and deeper place of depletion with them Uh, and i have a personal anecdote here and i feel a bit silly to admit this but but i think it's important that i do because it shows that no matter how well you think that you do something or know something uh, you might still be missing something completely and uh, and if you're on that tightrope of a high training load that can be the difference between great improvements or complete stagnation and my personal anecdote is that uh, well i had a few days four or five days straight where i just felt really really bad in training and i talked with my coach and uh, and we discussed things and we started discussing fueling and we started talking about swimming and i swim with a squad and my swims are typically uh, an hour 25 an hour 30 minutes or so and uh, long story short it turns out that i'm never taking energy during the swims or sometimes i do when we have a really hard threshold swim but uh, i rarely do and uh, for whatever reason i don't even know (laughs) it makes no sense at all but uh, yeah that was uh, one of the or one of the main issues we uh, we identified and uh, yeah that's for from somebody who has tried really really well to get on top of all things fueling in workouts but in my swims i've just been sucked into the habit i guess because nobody else in the squad seems to be fueling that well why would i do that uh, it's i haven't even been thinking about it honestly but it's obviously a very big mistake because with 90 minutes of swimming even if it's just endurance swimming you're using a lot of carbohydrates and uh, you're already from the start of the day putting yourself into a bit of a hole that is then difficult to get out of uh, when you have a workout in the afternoon and uh, then that can put you in, a, in an even deeper hole uh, and depending on what that workout is so so yeah uh, that's that's just a personal anecdote to show that uh, you you may think that you're doing things well but maybe you are missing some workouts like i did i was missing the swim workouts completely or maybe you're just not fueling as much as you should be doing there basically we don't know what we don't know and uh, so take a look at your in-workout fueling and, and assess again try to be very objective with yourself uh, are you doing it as good as you could be doing it so in-workout fueling in summary do it probably way more than you think uh, it is something that i know i and many other guests that have been on the show have been trying trying to hammer home for some time now and i do see a trend in an increased appreciation appreciation and understanding of this in athletes so i think that is really really great uh, one counter argument that comes up with against in workout fueling is the expense of it but actually as Bjorn Kafka said recently in my interview with him just buy a big bag of maltodextrin uh, that's glucose only uh, if you want to mix glucose and fructose then you just mix glucose with table sugar which is uh, which is uh, which contains fructose uh, you just uh, look up the amounts uh, in on the internet and then you you figure it out uh, if you want to get fancy you can even buy things like citric acid and start experimenting with mixing your own sports drinks there's quite a number of resources on the internet if that's that interests you as well but but you can keep things simple for up to 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour you can just use maltodextrin and it's very cheap to buy in bulk and uh, you have uh, you have energy that will last you for a long time now outside the workout fueling also does uh, contribute of course uh, greatly to recovery uh, and i feel that athletes generally do a much better job here with the outside of workout fueling than they do with the in workout fueling part in terms of recovery the main things to consider with regard to 
the fueling or nutrition outside of workouts is one to simply meet your calorie needs two to get enough carbohydrate which will then again as you said replenish the muscle glycogen and the liver glycogen stores and for athletes training at a high high volume uh, which most triathletes do uh, most advanced triathletes anyway i should say eight to ten grams per kilogram body weight per day is uh, a good sort of ballpark recommendation for carbohydrate needs third get enough protein for muscle protein synthesis to help repair muscle damage and so on and there the ballpark number is 1.2 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day and four and finally get plenty of vitamins and micronutrients from fruits and vegetables and other than that i'll leave it at a few key take-home messages that'll help all help contribute to good recovery which is to simply eat frequently uh, focus on eating less processed and more unprocessed foods and uh, eat to satiety uh, don't go hungry that's that's not a good sign and uh, a couple of great nutrition uh, episodes that i've done are with professor john hawley and trent stellingworth so i'll link to them as well in the episode description there will be like 100 links in this episode description but uh, but i hope you find it useful i want to link to all the resources that that are related to the topics we're talking about here so in summary with recovery and focusing on recovery and committing to recovery it is really important to commit to sleeping enough and to do the things it takes to ensure good sleep quality and to fuel well in and outside of workouts to ensure that your muscle glycogen levels don't run low and that you have all of the building blocks like protein available to build and repair muscle tissue and other tissue for that matter and tip number one is get a coach mentor or advisor i talked about this already in last week's episode and at that point it was uh, my number two on the list for intermediate athletes for advanced athletes it definitely makes the number one spot there is good reason that you see very few professional endurance athletes that don't have a coach even well well before getting to a professional level improvements for most athletes that we would call advanced are getting harder and harder to come by and uh, it's very difficult as an athlete to find these improvements on your own a coach athlete relationship at this level is often quite different than what it is for a beginner or intermediate athlete working with a coach the the relationship at this level is more explorative and really collaborative it's less about the coach saying well this is how things work and how you should do things in order to improve or just dumping knowledge on the athlete because it really isn't as much about knowledge as it is about having a good process for finding what works for the individual a great example of this is uh, our coaching team at scientific triathlon because we are all athletes as well as coaches and all of us are what uh, you would call very advanced athletes i would say Obviously, we all have the coaching knowledge and skills as that's what we do day in, day out for a living. But most of us still have uh, our own coaches to help us improve as athletes because uh, having a team of two, a coach and an athlete, is just so much more effective at finding the potential areas for improvement than just being solo, being on your own, no matter how knowledgeable you are. Uh, because that's well, one of the main reasons, of course, is that we all have our, some biases 
and uh, and and that helps it helps to have a coach because then you have somebody who is objective and they also have biases of course but they have different biases perhaps so so then you can keep each other in check and another one is that it's uh, just simply impossible to be completely objective about your own training no matter how hard you try uh, you you're not objective about your own training so that's where a coach can really really be valuable as well now, because of what I just uh, described about the nature of the coach-athlete relationship uh, can be different with more advanced experienced athletes than with less experienced athletes, uh, what you can also potentially do is to work in a less strict kind of formal coaching relationship, but rather work with, with a mentor or advisor. My personal experience from this, and I have experience of this from both being the mentor uh, slash advisor and from being the athlete slash mentee having a mentor but uh, outside of a formal coaching relationship and so this is just my personal preference but i do prefer a coaching relationship for me it works better at both ends of the relationship but but it's definitely something to that that can be considered it does work for some people so i wanted to mention it here as an option for the advanced athlete that has a lot of experience and knowledge themselves already and uh, and is looking for somebody to just help uh, throw some ideas around with and and uh, get an objective view on what they're doing and and maybe again getting somebody to make sure you don't get caught up in uh in personal biases uh, so but regardless if it is a coach mentor or advisor the summary of uh, this item of the list item number one is that for advanced athletes uh, you need to turn a lot of stones to find the areas for improvement and even once you find them knowing how to improve in that particular area can be anything other than clear-cut so having somebody with uh, with expertise but also objectivity and uh, different biases than your own working together with them to come up with a plan can be the difference between uh, complete stagnation and uh, seeing improvements that you might not have thought were even possible so in summary uh, the top five tips that advanced athletes can do to improve is number five learn how to race and not just execute a race plan number four optimize your gear and equipment uh, including bike equipment uh, shoes and wetsuit and also bike fit number three explore psychological aspects of performance number two increase focus on and commitment to recovery in particular sleep and nutrition and number one get a coach mentor or advisor so i hope that you enjoyed that episode uh, this was uh, the, the final part of this series i did uh, as you probably know last week one for intermediate athletes and two weeks ago one for beginner athletes so if you're interested in those and haven't listened to them go and check them out on Monday, I interview coach Björn Gesman uh, on his training philosophy. He is uh, a great coach from Germany, coaching, among others, Patrick Lange and uh, Kat Matthews and many other professional athletes. Uh, in the meantime, if you are interested in coaching services or training plans, uh, go check out scientifictriathlon.com and what we have to offer there. If you are looking to take your training to the next level, uh, we hope that we can be a part of that somehow. Thank you to our sponsors, Senate. Use the Senate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, and stamina, even when you don't have time to go to the pool or pools are closed. And get 20% off your order on the Swim Trainer with the promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS.
Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.